Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. If you don't have one with you, it's okay. Words will be up on the screen. You can follow along uh, there as well. We're going to continue uh, this morning our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel. Uh, now, a couple weeks ago, we began looking at a, a series in, in chapter 8, a series of four miracles that Jesus performed right before Right before, in chapter 9, he was going to send his 12 disciples out on their own for the very first time. He's going to send them out to do the types of things that he's been doing in chapter 9. But before he does that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record these four miracles that Jesus performed. And we talked about the fact that these four miracles point to to different aspects of, of the extraordinary power and authority that Jesus has. In the first miracle, the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee that we looked at last time, we saw the the power and the authority that Jesus has over nature, over the natural world, over over disaster. The second miracle we looked at, the the freeing of a demon-possessed man, we saw the the power and authority that Jesus has over evil and over the demonic realm. Jesus not only has power over the natural world, he has power over the, the supernatural world. And so those were the first two miracles that we looked at last time in verses 22 to 39. This morning, we're going to take a look at the next two in verses 40 to 56, which are kind of mashed together in one story, two stories mashed together into one. We have the healing of the the hemorrhaging woman, and we have the raising of Jairus's daughter. And in these two miracles that we're we're going to look at, we're going to see that Jesus has, has power and authority over sickness, over disease, and he even has power and authority over death itself. That's, that's a lot of power, wouldn't you say? Now, just to refresh our memories where we left off last time, you may recall that, so after Jesus freed the, the demon-possessed man, all right, it was an amazing story, right? This, this guy was tortured individual, tortured. After he frees him, the demons, uh, which they said were legion, right? Were legion, thousands of demons in, in this one guy. These demons, they leave the man and they enter into a, a herd of 2,000 pigs. If you, if you weren't here last week, you got to go back and, and you got to listen to that because it's an amazing, amazing story. But th- these demons, they enter the herd of pigs and they drive the pigs so berserk that these pigs, they go rushing over to the cliff along the Sea of Galilee. They rush down the banks into the lake, and they drown. Right? Crazy story. And when the people of that region, when, when they hear the story, you, you would think they'd be happy about the guy getting healed, right? That's what you would hope, right? But when they come, they are terrified. They are freaked out by what, by what they see because 2,000 pigs are now floating dead in the lake. This is a financial devastation for these people. And so Luke says that they were afraid and they begged Jesus. They begged Jesus to go away. They're like, man, if this guy sticks around, I don't know what's going to happen next, right? So they beg Jesus to leave. And we talked about, isn't that so tragic, right? The one who just set this man free is standing there. He has the power to free them, right? He has what they need and they beg him to leave. And so Jesus, though, he's he's a polite savior. He's not going to hang out where he's not wanted, right? He's not going to force his way. And so Jesus, 
he, he obliges, right? He gets into the boat with his disciples and they begin to make their way back to the other side of the lake. And that brings us to where we're gonna pick up our story this morning in verse 40. So Luke chapter eight, verse 40, we're gonna uh, begin reading. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, He implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. We'll stop there. So after this brief visit over to the other side of the lake into a region known as the Decapolis, it's a Gentile region on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples are now returning to the western shores. All right, this is the place where he's been spending most of the time. And although the text doesn't come right out and say it, most commentators agree that that all the clues from the text suggest that Jesus is returning to the area that had become his, his home base, the home base, the headquarters for his ministry, which was the city of Capernaum. And Jesus is returning to a place where where most of the miracles that we've read so far in Luke's gospel have taken place. This is the place where you remember that that Jesus healed a demon-possessed man in the synagogue, right? This is the place where Jesus uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick. This is the place where where Jesus had, had taken the man who was paralyzed. His friends carried him. They lowered him through the roof. Jesus healed him. That took place in Capernaum. This is the place where he called Matthew from his tax booth to come and follow him. This people in Capernaum knew Jesus and they were familiar with the miracles that he had been performing. So it's really not much of a surprise to read that as they're arriving, there's a crowd just waiting to welcome him, right? They're waiting to see him. They're, 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 they're gathered along the shores. Mark's gospel says that, that it was a great crowd that was gathered along the shores of the lake. So they don't even wait for him to get, it's not like he gets out of the boat and goes home, right? Goes over to Peter's house. No, they're waiting at the shore. You can imagine how this scene unfolds, right? As, as, as somebody's on the shoreline, right? People are hanging on the shore. They know that Jesus went to the other side and they're like, man, when's he coming back? When's he coming back? And then somebody sees the boat coming and they're like, yeah, I think, oh, there's a boat coming. I think, yeah, that, that looks like their boat. Hey, that's them. That's the, that's the disciples. That's Jesus and the disciples. They're coming. And they start yelling it out like, hey, guys, Jesus is coming. He's coming. Right? And word spreads quickly. And all of a sudden, as Jesus arrives at the shore, he's greeted by a great crowd gathering to see him. I think it's interesting, sad, but interesting, that on one side of the lake, there's a crowd of people who are begging Jesus to leave. They're begging him to leave. On the other side of the lake, there's a crowd of people just waiting for Jesus to arrive. Two completely and opposite responses to Jesus, right? But if you think about it, not a whole lot has changed in 2,000 years, right? Jesus still separates the crowds, doesn't he? He's, still, he's a very polarizing God, a very polarizing person. You you, you love him or you hate him, right? He does that. He divides. Luke tells us that among those who were there waiting 
in this crowd, there's a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, the synagogue, as you, as you may recall from earlier in our study, was, it was the heart of the Jewish community. This is the place where Jews would, would gather for worship, for prayer, for the study of God's word, much like a church today. It was the center of the Jewish community. And so as you can imagine, if you, if you can imagine the, the synagogue ruler, this was a really important and a really prominent position in the community. As the, as, as the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus was responsible for, for the oversight of everything that took place at the synagogue. Everything, like whatever's gonna happen at the synagogue was run through through Jairus. He was responsible not only for like uh, the building upkeep, he had to make sure that the building was being maintained and make sure he had people taking care of this place, but he was also responsible for, for planning and organizing any of the gathered services that took place at the synagogue. And synagogue rulers, although they may not have actually done the teaching, they were the ones who were responsible for choosing who were the rabbis that were going to read from the scrolls? Who were the rabbis that are going to teach the people as they gather? This is a really, really prestigious and an honored position in the community. So you got to know that Jairus was someone who would have been well, well known. Everybody in that community knew exactly who, who Jairus was. And more than likely, more than likely, he was probably a, a wealthy man. And he was certainly a man of high social standing. And so when Jairus shows up at this crowd, this crowd that's gathering along the shores, right? Gathering to, to see and to be near Jesus. This is not the type of person who, who, who is pushed to the back, you know? He's not stuck in the back just like, I want to see Jesus, right? No. When Jairus shows up, the crowd goes, oh, Jairus is here. Well, yeah, right, it's this way, right? They usher him to the front. Jairus says, I need to get to Jesus. And everybody says, yeah, no problem. We bring him up to the front. But notice Jairus's posture. Notice his posture as he approaches Jesus. Jairus is not coming to Jesus as a proud and puffed up ruler, is he? That's not the posture that we see here in this story. He is coming to Jesus as a broken father. He's not coming to, to, to flex his authority. He's not coming to, to make demands. Jairus is coming to Jesus in total humility. What a picture of humility in this, picture, in this story. Jairus is, where is he? He is face down on the ground begging at the feet of Jesus. Luke says that he was imploring Jesus to come to his house begging Jesus to heal his only daughter. Luke tells us that she was 12 years old. I mean, can you even imagine? Can you even put yourself in, in Jairus' shoes for a moment? An only child, 12 years old. By the way, 12 years old in that culture, Luke inserts that. He doesn't tell us how old everybody is, right? But by saying that, by saying, this, this, this girl is 12 years old, he's telling us something about her. She is on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the edge of transitioning from childhood into adulthood in that culture. Many, many 
young girls, 12, 13, 14 years old, that's the time when they would marry in that culture. So this is, this is, this is a lady, a young lady who's transitioning into the, this is the prime of her life. This is a time that should be filled with joy and celebration for Jairus, but instead his heart is, is breaking, right? He's breaking because the pride and joy of his life is lying in a bed at home, dying. I've, I've never been there. I don't know what he was feeling. I can only try to imagine the desperation that he must have been feeling. And so Jairus, in desperation, he rushes to Jesus and he begs for help. Jairus says, Jesus, please, right? Jesus, you, you got to come. If you don't come, my girl is going to die. What a picture of humility, desperation. Imagine, I mean, this is not just some guy. Imagine what the people thought to see this, this well-respected, high, high, high social profile leader probably dressed in his fine clothes on the ground, clutching, begging Jesus, please, you got to come. My daughter is dying. But it's also a picture of faith, isn't it? Listen, we don't know, we don't know what, Jairus's views about Jesus were prior to this. The text doesn't tell us. It is quite possible, even probable, that Jairus was like many of the other religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus. We've been seeing this over and over, right? As we've been making our way through Luke, we've seen the opposition from those who were the religious leaders. And so Jairus might have been one of those who was in opposition to Jesus. But <laughs> when your only daughter is at home dying, things change, don't they? Jairus turns to Jesus because he recognizes that Jesus is his only hope. You know, there's no doubt that Jairus had heard about all the miracles, right? You couldn't live on that side of the lake and not have heard about what Jesus was doing, and especially someone like Jairus. And if this is in Capernaum, the, the, the demon-possessed man that was healed in the synagogue, come on, Jairus would have been there that day, right? He would have seen it. He would have known about the gathering over at that house where Jesus healed the paralyzed man. And so Jairus has no doubt. Jairus has no doubt that this Jesus, he is able to heal his daughter. He knows it. He knows it. The question is, will he? So he comes to Jesus begging total humility, Jesus, please, please come. In verse 42, Luke says that as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. I don't, I don't want you to miss the significance of, of those words. Jesus went. He went. One of the things that is, is so striking about Jesus is, is how much he loved and cared for broken people. When you read the Gospels, you, you cannot avoid being confronted with the compassion that Jesus had, right? Over and over, over and over and over and over again, it says that Jesus moved with compassion, looked on the crowds, right? 
He was consistently moved with compassion for those who were in need. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Guys, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is a God of great compassion. Make no mistake that the heart of God is breaking and grieving about what's going on in Israel right as we speak. He, and you think about, think about Jairus is coming to God begging, right, for his daughter. Think about the parents right now who are crying out to God right now because their daughters, their children have been taken hostage. And he cares. He does. And he walks. He went. He walks with people in their pain. Jesus didn't say, hey, I don't need to go to your house. Didn't you hear the story about the centurion servant that I healed back in the last chapter, chapter 7? You know, you didn't read that story. He doesn't say that. He could have. He could have said, oh, really? All right, she's healed. Next. You know, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He, he went. Man, what a great challenge for you and me. Jesus never allowed the demands and, and the pressure of the crowd to prevent him from meeting the needs of the individual. He took time to walk with a grieving father. What about you? What, what, what about me? Are we moved with compassion for the lost, for the broken, for those who are in need? Or, or are we just, we're too busy. We're too busy meeting the needs of the majority or the crowds, and we don't have time for the broken person who's right in front of us. Jesus went. Man, we're called to be like him, right? Jesus was so, so interruptible, wasn't he? But as we're about to find out, Jairus wasn't the only one in the crowd who was desperate to get to Jesus. So, so you've got this desperate father there, but there's other people who are desperate to get to him too. As we continue reading, Luke says, as Jesus went, the, the people pressed around him. And in verse 43, we read there, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. So as we're reading this story, we're reading this story about Jesus ministering to to Jairus and his daughter, right? And as we're reading this story, the story is now interrupted. Jairus interrupts Jesus ministering to the crowds, and now that story gets interrupted by another story, another miracle. But I think in order for us to get a better sense for, for the situation that's unfolding, we really need to get a picture of what this crowd was like, what this crowd was like. Luke says that the crowd was pressed around him. If you read Mark's take, he says that the the, the crowds, they thronged about him. And the word, the verb that's being used here for for pressed or, or thronged is a word that is used to describe the idea of being choked out or strangled. Choked out or, or str- it's a very strong word to describe what, th- what this crowd looks like. 
It's actually the same word that Jesus used earlier in this chapter when he was talking about when the, we, uh, the, the seed fell amongst the, the weeds. He says that the, the cares of this world choked out that seed and it didn't bear fruit. It, it suffocates. So what Luke is describing here is a crowd that was, that was pressing in on Jesus in such a way that it was, it was almost suffocating. If you've ever been in a, a crowd like this, if you've been, have you ever been to a concert where like the artist does the dumbest thing, they get down and they try to walk through the crowd and then what does everybody do? Like, we got to get as close to the, the artist as possible and everybody's pushing to get as close so they can reach out and touch the hem of their robes. And then after it's like, I touched him. He gave me a high five. I wonder if he remembers it. But no, if you've been in a crowd like that, you know what that's like. You know how tedious a crowd like this moves, you know, how, how slow. Like if you're trying to walk in a crowd like this, it's like bumper to bumper and you're, ugh, I don't like those <laughs> types of crowds. It's very uncomfortable. Nobody, nobody wants to miss out on what's happening up front with Jesus, right? So everybody's trying. They're, they're jockeying for position, trying to get as close to Jesus as possible. They want to see it. You know, they don't have a camera floating overhead covering the whole thing, so you can see it on the big screen, right? So they're all, they're trying to get there. And amongst those who are trying to, to make their way closer to Jesus is this unnamed woman who had been sick for 12 years. Think about that, 12 years again. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, <laughs> think about that, Jairus has had 12 awesome years, right? 12 years with his daughter. For as long as he's had his daughter alive, this woman has been suffering with a medical condition, which a medical condition which is thought to be either, either, either a uterine hemorrhage or a vaginal hemorrhage, one of the, one of the two. And this, this condition left her totally isolated from the rest of society. She was an outcast in that society. According to Leviticus chapter 15, because of her bleeding, she was, she was considered to be con uh, continually, ceremonially unclean. And all that means is that she was not allowed, she was not allowed to go to the temple. She wasn't allowed to go to, to synagogue services. It also meant that anyone who came in contact with her would also become ceremonially unclean for a time. She was an outcast. People avoided her, probably her own family avoided contact with her in order to not become unclean. So this is a woman who, who not only lived with all of the physical struggles that are connected with, with this condition. Just think about like, the, like the, the, the fears that would accompany a physical condition like this. But she also suffered continually from the social, the emotional, and even spiritual isolation that her condition caused. And Luke tells us that she, even though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Mark's gospel, he says that even though she had spent everything she had on physicians, she was no better, but rather she grew worse. It was getting worse. 
Try to imagine the discouragement that she must have felt as she spent every penny she has moving from one doctor to the next, only to see her condition growing worse and worse. Can you imagine how hopeless she must have felt? Can you imagine how lonely she must have felt? In some ways, in some ways, you, you, as we, as we read this story, these two stories that are mashed into one, Jairus and this woman could not have been more different in, in some ways. I mean, Jairus was a well-respected leader in the community who begs Jesus to come to his house. He, he comes to Jesus. The crowd parts and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you got to come to my house. The centurion uh, earlier in chapter 7, he, he didn't even say, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. But Jairus says, yeah, I need you to come to my house. But this woman, she's a social outcast. Her highest hope was to get close enough to Jesus that she could secretly touch the edge of his robe. Jairus and this woman were at the opposite ends of the social Ladder. And yet, as different as they were, they both had something very significant in common. They were both in desperate need of what only Jesus could provide. Isn't that amazing? Man, we're all, the, 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 the table, it's level at the foot of the cross, right? For 12 years, this woman has suffered. But when she hears the stories, she hears about all the miracles that Jesus has been you know, performing, healing various illnesses and diseases, her heart begins to hope again. She thinks, man, if, if I could just touch the fringe of his garment, if I, could just, if I could just reach out and touch the edge of his robe, I too will be healed. God, she has a lot of faith, doesn't she? That's pretty, I, I think it's pretty remarkable. I love this uh, story. But you have to know that for, in order for her to do this, in order for her to get to Jesus, to, to, to touch the edge of his rope, think about how risky this is gonna be for her. I mean, the problem, of course, is that if she touches him, if she touches him, then she, she, she risks making him ceremonially unclean. This famous rabbi who's traveling around that everybody's gathering around to see, she knows that if she gets caught touching him, everyone's going to be like, you just contaminated the rabbi. And, and think about how many people she's going to bump into just making her way through the crowd to get to Jesus. You think they're going to be super forgiving when they find out who's bumping into them? Yeah. Imagine this, the, the, the shame and the condemnation that she risks if she gets caught. But she's desperate. And so in desperation, she makes the decision that she's, she's going to go for it. She's going to go. Now, listen, I don't know if she disguised herself. I'm assuming she would, you know, somehow disguise herself. Or, or, or something else I was thinking, maybe she traveled from such a distance that nobody there actually knew who she was. I mean, the, the words about Jesus had traveled pretty far, right? So it's possible she's from a distance away. And she, when she heard, she heard, he, Jesus spends a lot of time in Capernaum. That's where I'm headed. 
And so she heads to Capernaum. But whatever the case may be, when, when, when Jesus, Jairus, and the disciples are, are slowly moving in, in this crowd, making their way to Jairus' house, this woman maneuvers her way through the crowd until she's close enough to reach out and touch the edge of his robe. And Luke tells us that immediately her discharge of blood ceased right there, right then. Mark tells us, this is cool, Mark tells us that immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She knew, right? She was healed immediately by Jesus and she knew it. She knew it. I mean, can you imagine, can you just imagine the joy and the relief that she felt in that moment as she, as she grabbed the garment, right? And then whoosh, I don't even know what that feels like, but just, I'm calling it whoosh. She, whoosh, she feels it. I know that I've been bleeding for 12 years and that just stopped right now. It's done, it's over. 12 years of suffering and she's been healed. What, what none of the physicians could do for her, she received from Jesus with just a touch. And so now, having received what she came for, she got what she came for. What's the next step? Right? Back away slowly. Make your way back out of the crowd. Slip away unnoticed. But Jesus had other plans. I'm so glad he did. Verse 45, we see Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that, that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. <laughs> so much for slipping away unnoticed. Jesus stops immediately. Who touched me? <laughs> now, I don't, I don't actually know exactly how he said it. I don't know if it was that forceful. But I, he didn't say like, hmm, I think someone just... He said it in such a way that everybody denied it. Like, it wasn't me. <laughs> I didn't touch you. You know, I, I, can, I can picture the crowd like going like, it wasn't me. It was probably this guy next to me, right? They, like, I, no, everybody denied it. I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. I didn't touch you. And Peter hears it. and He's like, what, what are you talking about? What are you, who touched you, Jesus? Are you, are you blind? Like, look around. There's a huge crowd. They're all bumping. They're choking you. They're pressing in on you. They're suffocating you. And you say, who touched me? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, this was different. Yeah I, yeah, I get it, Peter. Thanks for stating the obvious, Peter. I, no, this was different. I felt the healing power that went out from me. This was not the touch of the crowd. This was the touch of faith. Very different. 
There's a huge difference between the touch of the crowd and the touch of faith. Now, there are some who, who think that Jesus didn't know who touched him. Some think that, you know, again, Philippians chapter 2, based on his, his humanity and what he laid aside, that he didn't know. He really didn't know. I don't, I don't believe so. I actually believe he did know. I believe that the question isn't intended so he can figure it out. The question is for her benefit. Jesus is, is calling this woman out from fear. She's still in fear. She's backing away, hiding, right? Jesus is calling her out from hiding. He's calling her to take another step forward in her faith. Jesus was not content to let her just walk away with a physical healing. He could have. He could have. I, I, when, I, when I picture this scene, I, as, Peter, as Jesus is answering Peter's question, you know, like, Peter's like, well, everybody's touching you. I, I really believe that, that when, when Jesus looked around at the crowd, I don't think he's looking at Peter when he says this. I think he locked eyes with that woman. And he said, someone touched me. And he's looking at her. And I believe that as he's looking at her eyes, she knows. In that moment, she knows that he knows. And so she steps forward, trembling right? Trembling, falling down before him. Why is she afraid? Because she was unclean. She just touched the rabbi. She's touched all these people, but she knows that he knows, so she comes clean, right? She comes forward to tell him, and she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. By the way, I mean, it's one thing like, oh, you got healed of blindness. This is a, come on, this is a shameful, embarrassing illness that she has, a female issue that she, you don't run around and want to talk about it, right? That's no different today. You know, we, when we have these types of illnesses, we're like, yeah, I don't want to, just, it's an unspoken prayer request, right? You know, oh, I, yeah, I, I broke my arm, pray for that. But like, oh, vaginal bleeding, no, just unspoken, you know? This is, so she's, she's ashamed, she's afraid. And, and so Jesus says, no, come forward. So she does. Now, she was content with a physical healing, as I said, but Jesus wants so much more for her. He calls her forward in front of all these people to share what God has done, to give testimony to what has happened in her life. And when she does, what does Jesus do? He publicly, Jesus publicly praises her for her faith. How about that? The Son of God is calling her out and saying, man, look at that faith. You have great faith. That's awesome. Not only that, he publicly affirms that she has been healed. You didn't just feel it in your body. I am telling you, you were just healed. You were healed. Jesus wants her to know it, and he wants everyone there to know it. He wants them to know that she is clean. And you remember the, the leper that, uh, that, that got cleansed? Wow. This is a big deal. Jesus is not just restoring her physically. He's restoring her socially, spiritually. She can now go back to the synagogue, to worship, to study the word, and to, to, to pray. How about the fact? How about this? Did you think about this? Who is there next to Jesus as he heals her? The ruler of the synagogue is there to affirm that this woman has been cleansed. How cool is that? You can come back to the synagogue now. 
This is a big, big deal. Jesus is restoring her. But, but see, more important than, than her physical healing, healing more important than, 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 than being restored socially, Jesus wants this woman, this, this woman who's been hiding in shame, he wants her to know that she is not just some woman, some woman with this disease. She is his beloved daughter. Can you imagine the weight of that one word? Can you imagine? Jesus, the, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, looks her in the eye and he calls her daughter. Daughter. Phil talked today about how we are children of God. Abba, he's our father. Do you know that I believe, I believe, you can check me on this, I believe that she is the only individual woman in the scriptures that Jesus calls daughter. I believe, I, I, I think after the resurrection, he refers to the women, who, as he's on the cross, I think he refers to the women who are weeping at the cross as daughters of, of Jerusalem or daughters of Israel. But to look at one individual woman and call her daughter, I believe this is the only one. Can you imagine the ah, oh, the joy and, 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 the, and, and, and the love that she must have felt in that moment? He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go at shalom, right? Peace. Man, what an amazing peace is ours when we realize that we are the sons and the daughters of God. And do you realize that? You're his children. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's your dad. You're his son. You're his daughter. We, not only do we have the peace of God, but we have peace with God. Amazing. Well, speaking of daughters, there's another story going on here, right? Isn't there? Put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a moment. Imagine the concern and the frustration that he must have been feeling in this moment, right? He came and said, Jesus, you've got to come. Time is of the essence. Every minute counts. This crowd, I mean, it was already moving so slow, right? Because it's just like oh, bumper to bumper. This crowd is just obnoxiously slow, and he's worried about his daughter. We've got to get home to my daughter. And now Jesus stops the crowd. They stop moving towards his house, and Jesus says, who touched me? And Jairus must have been thinking, are you kidding me, Jesus? We don't have time for this. We don't. You can't blame him, right? I mean, you'd, I mean wouldn't you feel the same way? You would, I know you would, right? Because if, if you've ever been in a hurry to get to the hospital for somebody who's sick or dying and there's a red light, come on, you're like, I'm running it. Oh, they pull me over. I'm just going to, they can follow me to the hospital. You know, I'm not pulling over. But seriously, though, how amazing is it? This is encouraging. How amazing is it to realize that the God of the universe is not troubled in the least by our interruptions? Wow. I mean, this is a big deal. This girl's dying. I, you've been dealing with this bleeding thing for 12 years. You can wait till after I heal the girl dying, right? Couldn't she wait? Just wait a couple more hours? Jesus is not thrown off by this interruption. He's so interruptible that you can interrupt his interruptions, right? In fact, Jesus welcomes our interruptions. 
the, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God of the universe is never so busy meeting the needs of someone else that he is unwilling or unable to meet the needs that you have. He cares. He loves you. He wants to hear from you, and he wants to walk with you. That's awesome. That is amazing. Well, in verse 49, the story continues, and we read that while he was still speaking, things are about to get a lot worse. While Jesus is, is still there talking with this woman, his, da- his, his, his daughter, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him and said, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Jairus hears the words that every parent dreads. His daughter has died. And I already said it. I, I cannot even begin. I, I, I can't. But I know that maybe some of you can. Some of you have walked through this. The, probably, I mean, it might be probably the most painful thing that a person on this side of eternity can experience is the death of a child. I can't begin to imagine the flood of, of emotions and grief that, that hit Jairus in that moment. The, the shock, the questions, the, the anger. Man, if we didn't stop, maybe we would have made it in time. You know, all those feelings just come rushing in in that moment. And the messenger, you can see the lack of faith here, right? Because the messenger says, do not trouble the teacher anymore. In other words, it's too late. It's too late. Well, while she was alive, there was still hope, but it's too late. But Jesus says, no, no. Jairus, Jairus, do not fear. Don't fear, only believe. Now, Jairus had come to Jesus, why? Because he knew that Jesus was able to heal his daughter. He knew. And Jesus says, Jairus, keep believing. Don't stop believing now, Jairus. You came here believing that I could heal your daughter. I can still heal your daughter. Because as we're about to see, Jesus, his his power and his authority is not limited just to sickness and disease. Jesus has power and authority even over death itself. Death doesn't get the final answer. We know that, right? Not with Jesus. Praise God, I believe Jairus did keep believing. How do I know that? Because they kept walking. They kept walking. Verse 51 says, when they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now, Once again, if if we read all the accounts of this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get a more complete sort of picture of the scene that Jesus walks into as he arrives at the home of Jairus. As Jesus arrives, the professional mourners are already there. And you're like, professional what? Professional mourners. Matthew, Matthew tells us that there were flute players... And there was a great commotion. Now, we don't, we don't, that's not how we do things here, right? When someone dies at home, we call and they come, they take the body away, right? In that culture, this was a normal custom. When someone died, 
professional mourners would be hired, listen, paid to come and mourn the death. And, and the more, more prominent and the more well-known a person was, the greater the wailing and the greater the commotion would be. And so this is the scene that Jesus is walking into. She, she's, it's been long enough, she's been dead long enough that the mourners uh, have arrived, the flute players are playing the flutes, and people are wailing and, and, and crying, and, and, and it's a big, big commotion. And Jesus walks in, and he says, do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. What does Jesus mean by that? I mean, is she dead or not? Is she dead or not? Now, listen, some today will say, yeah, yeah, see, this is the, she really wasn't dead. She was just in a coma, and that's why Jesus said that. But they're wrong. They're wrong. She was dead. She was dead, and I know that because, as we're going to see in a few minutes, it says her spirit returned to her. She was dead. She was dead. And, and, and these are professional mourners. They're there because this person is dead. That's why they've come. So what does he mean? The situation is this. She is physically dead, but her condition is not permanent. It's temporary. It's, it's as though she's sleeping because she is going to be raised up. He's going to raise her up just like he did with Lazarus in John chapter 11. We don't have time to go there, but you should. You should go and read the story of Jesus raising Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus told his disciples that we got to go see Lazarus because Lazarus has fallen asleep. And his disciples like, well, if he's asleep, he's going to be okay, Jesus. He'll wake up, right? They didn't understand. They didn't understand what he's saying. So Jesus then explained it plainly. He says, no, you don't understand. Lazarus has died. He's died. But Jesus, when he arrived, you guys know the story. It's a great story, right? They get there, and, and Lazarus has already been buried, and, and, and he's in the tomb, and Jesus goes, and, and it says, <laughs> I love this verse in John 11, it, it says that he stinketh. If, you got to read the King James to get the full impact, but he stinketh. He's literally dead, 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 right? He's not just mostly dead, princess bride. He is dead, dead, okay? And so, so Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He's back to life, and that's what he's about to do for Jairus' daughter. And by the way, the whole idea of, of sleep and death, that's all throughout the Bible. The Old Testament, they talk about he went, he slept with his fathers, right? It's with his ancestors. He is now dead, that's what it means, you know? So verse 53 tells us that, that these professional mourners, though, they, they hear Jesus say this, and they mocked him. That's the difference between professional mourners and those who really care, right? If they really cared, they would have been like, really? That's great. That's great. They're just like, they, they mocked him because like, hey, you're just, trying to, you're just trying to cut into our income, you know? They mocked him. So what does Jesus do? Well, Mark tells us that Jesus put them outside. He put them outside. Jesus says, get them out of here. Get the mourners out of here. And then he took Jairus and his wife along with Peter, James, and John. This is the first time we see Peter, James, and John being kind of called in to see something special, but we see it over and over in the Gospels. Jesus has a, a very close relationship with these three. And, 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 and they all went into where the body was lying. And in verse 54, we read, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Jesus 
Jesus takes her hand and with a spoken word, he calls her spirit back to her body. And she got up at once, right? With a spoken word, Jesus demonstrates that he has the power and authority even over, over death. And she's not, she's not just alive, she's healthy. She's healthy. That's why Jesus says, get her something to eat. She's got to be hungry. I mean, she's been sick for who knows how long. You know, when you're sick, you don't eat, right? And now she's been dead. And I don't even know what death does to your hunger, but she is hungry, right? And so Jesus is just super practical. And he said, look, let's get her something to eat. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine <laughs> what Jairus and his wife are feeling in this moment? Wow. I mean, the joy, the gratitude. Oh, do you, th- do you think they hugged their daughter that night before they put her in bed? And every night thereafter? Man, verse 56 says that her parents were amazed. They were amazed. You, you think? Right? Is, there, is there a word that you could use to really adequately describe what they must have been feeling? They were amazed. You know, okay. It's got to be a bigger word than that, right? It's just like, ah, what do you, my daughter was dead and she's now alive. This is unbelievable, right? It's, oh, it's amazing. But he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what had happened. What? How, how, do, you, how do you not tell people about this? Jesus tells them to keep it quiet. Don't broadcast this around. Not yet. Not yet. And there's all kinds of speculation as to why Jesus did that. Some people think it's so he could protect this girl. Like, Poor girl, she's gonna be the, like everybody's me, like news reporters following her around constantly, right? Jesus is maybe protecting her. The other, I mean, very logical maybe guess is that it's not yet Jesus' time. And, and it's already, look, when he tries to go from town to town, it's like at this pace. Can you imagine when word gets out that Jesus healed someone from the dead? Every single person who dies is going to be, it's going to be crazy, right? So it's possible. It's all that. The the truth is we just don't know. Sometimes he tells people to go and tell everyone, and sometimes he tells them, no, just keep it quiet for now. Doesn't matter. They didn't listen. People didn't listen. Matthew tells us that the report of this went throughout all the district, right? Because honestly, even if the parents were like, yes, sir. We won't say a word. It doesn't matter. All those other mourners and the crowds, they're going to be talking about it. And this word spread throughout the whole district. Well, that brings us to the sort of the end of chapter eight. It's four incredible miracles demonstrating the, the, the extraordinary power and authority that Jesus has. He's got power and authority over nature. He's got the natural world over the supernatural world. He has power over illness, sickness, and even death. But as we close, I, I want to take a moment. I want to take a moment to acknowledge a, a very real question. It's a very real question that can flood our hearts and our minds as we read a passage like this. If Jesus can heal a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, why hasn't he healed me? We ask those questions, don't we? Why hasn't he healed my loved one that I've been praying for for 12 years? I mean, if Jesus can raise Jairus' daughter back to life, why didn't he raise my loved one back to life? I'm not, look, I prayed for that. 
I remember when my dad died. I remember praying. Even after he died, I was like, I know, I've read the scriptures, Jesus. I know that you can bring him back to life. I know he can. But he didn't. He didn't. And so I, I want to say this. I want to make sure that we hear this, that first of all, it is okay to wrestle with those questions. Like God is not like, oh, I can't even listen to this right now from you. Like, this is just not the way he is. He knows your pain. He knows the hurt. And we, listen, we know that Jesus wept when Lazarus died, even though he knew that he was going to bring him back to life in a few moments. Why? Because sin and death are part of the fall. It's part of the fall. And, and it grieves the heart of God. Jesus was grieved by this, and he understands the pain. And also, keep in mind that even though Jesus raised Lazarus back to life, he's not still here. You know, he did die eventually. Even though Jesus healed this woman's hemorrhaging, she still eventually died. Even though he raised Jairus' daughter, she did die. It, it, this is the world that we live in, and it, it stinks. And God thinks it stinks. It's not what he intended. When he created this world in his garden, this is not what he intended. Death is an enemy, right? But this is also why Jesus came. Isn't it why he came? He came to rescue us from the penalty of sin. He came to free us from the power of death. Brothers and sisters, the, 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 what this story demonstrates is that Jesus has the power and the authority over sickness and death. It demonstrates that he has the power over these things. Not that, this isn't like that, that everybody who dies should therefore be raised on this side, right? But it is a, an awesome, awesome encouragement that those who are his, if you're a child of God, you will be raised. That's what the scriptures teach. Death is not gonna get the final answer. You will not be eternally separated from God. You will live with him forever. That's amazing. In John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, Jesus is talking to Lazarus' sister, Martha. And it's, you know, after Lazarus has died, and, and he hasn't raised him back yet, but he says to Martha, he says, um, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's not talking about physical death there, is he? Because a lot of people, since he said those words, have physically died. But those who, who are followers of Jesus, who live and believe in him, will live even though they physically die. Your spirit will be with God forever. Amen? That's amazing. It's amazing. And then Jesus said, or he asked Martha the most important question that you and I will ever answer. He said, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that, you don't have that hope. You don't. You will be eternally dead and separated from God. That's what the scriptures teach. That the second death is that you will be eternally separated from God. That's not good. That's not good, but it doesn't have to be that way. By faith in Jesus Christ, we can live with him forever. Well, at this time, I'd like to invite the worship team up to, to, as we close. 
And as they're coming up, I want to read these words from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, 1 to 4. This is what we read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what we're looking forward to, right? Death doesn't get the final answer, which is why we, with Paul, can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.